Hello, everyone. This is Tracy Sisko from the Chicago Justice Project. I'd like to welcome you to the Chicago Justice Show. We're excited today to have Deborah Witzberg back with us. She's the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General for the city of Chicago. We're going to be talking with her a little bit later about um, a recent report, uh, at least the third that I've seen this year, that have been really good, deep dives into activities around policing and police accountability. This one's titled Evaluation of the Use of the Affidavit Override Rule in Disciplinary Investigations of the Chicago Police Department. As someone who does police accountability and has for a long time, I was thrilled to see this. We'll tell you more in depth about what it's actually getting. It kind of gets into the weeds about a police accountability, but it's very important. Um, I know as someone who's been working on this issue for 25 years in Chicago, we thought from an outsider's view that the Independent Police Review Authority, and now it's just called IPRA, or now COPA, the Citizen Office of Police Accountability, and Internal Affairs within the CPD, all um, did not take advantage of this as the way they were uh, meant to, uh, legally empowered to. So we're going to talk a little more about that evaluation with her um, in the next segment. But first, I want to talk about some developments. First of all, let's talk FOP, Fraternal Order Police Chicago. Their president, John Katanzara, coming out in an interview with WBEZ, talking about... Um, Having sympathy and understanding for what we saw in our Capitol on Wednesday, January 6th, um, and, under, and, and failing to condemn the actions of, I don't know if you call them protesters or rioters or insurrectionists. I tend to go more towards the insurrectionist perspective there, uh, especially since I'm a mile from the Capitol now. Um, he came out and he, he kind of defended the actions by saying what they did, they just pushed past security and there wasn't any violence and there, there wasn't any um, looting because, you know, there's a, it's significantly worse to steal a pair of sneakers from a store than it is to storm the Capitol to stop the certification of a legal election uh, in our presidential transfer of power. and. Um, I'm going to stop there and just say, we don't know what all their intentions were. There's plenty of evidence that's been reported about the weapons that have been found. Um, the press conference yesterday with um, the U.S. attorney from D.C. and the FBI special agent in charge, um, they certainly seem to promise that more charges are coming and that we have no idea the level of violence that went on inside the halls of Congress, that we, even though there was some live media inside, we are going to be shocked when we see that. And I can't imagine how I can be shocked over the shock that I already feel. Um, to me, that was a victimization of 350 million people or what, however many people we have in this country. Um, and for the FOP president to come out like that, it's disgusting. It's not shocking, though. This is not a person, if you've known uh, since he's been elected, he's not been, even prior to that, he's not been shy about his political views. Um, you know, he, he's been, you got to understand his history. This man probably has one of the highest level of complaints in the department. I think he's in the top one percentile with 50, around 50 complaints filed against him. Some of those individual complaints have multiple components of them. He has served over his time in the force. He served uh, two or three or four suspensions. And to make everything worse, to get an idea about what man he, what kind of man this guy really is, almost all of those complaints are internal. These are not him necessarily abusing people on the street. These are about him just being a bad officer. It takes a lot for one cop to complain about another. Imagine 30 or 40 complaining against him. It's mind-boggling. He has since, after getting just reamed out everywhere he possibly could, from the national FOP down, um, we even recently had, I think, 36 aldermen sign on to a resolution calling for him to resign. Um, why it took this, and it wasn't the fact that they elected someone who had 50 complaints and multiple suspensions to run the police union, the largest of the city's police unions, I don't know, but um, he has just recently come out a little while ago in an article with BEZ again, um, talked about there's no way he's resigning. Um, he shouldn't have been elected. That shows you the rot that's in 
the largest police union in the city, represents the patrol officers and I think detectives. Um, the union has some has for a long time and certainly has rot in it to elect him. Um, but anyone that defends what happened um, at the Capitol last Wednesday should be out of a job at the very least. Okay, the next issue I want to talk about, um, and it goes to policymaking. And you, there was an article recently in Black Club and other places, Black Club just had one today about it, which is about a videotape just being released about a um, incident in which a Chicago police officer ran over a woman. Um, it's unclear right now whether it was completely on purpose, if it was just an accident, but uh, there was a freedom of information request battle is the CPD and the city um, under Mayor Lightfoot tried everything they could do to suppress and repress access to the unfiltered videos, any of the videos, but especially the unfiltered videos, the body cam videos, the dash cam videos about that incident. And the city's explanation was, and they're true, but it, it defies the spirit and certainly defies what Mayor Lightfoot ran on. They're saying, well, we only have a 60-day obligate. We have an obligation to release um, um, videos around use of force after 60 days. We have a 60-day time limit. And they're right on the letter of the law, but they're not in the spirit of the law. And honestly, if we wanted to live by that kind of disregard for the spirit and transparency, we could have just, just left old Mayor Daly, any of the old Mayor Daly's in charge. We certainly could have left Rahm Emanuel in charge. Um, I have been delinquent in writing a letter to our guest today and to uh, Joe Ferguson, the, the actual inspector general for the city, to um, request an audit of FOIA responses, Freedom of Information Act responses from the city. Um, I will do that this week. I'm promising everyone. Um, there needs to be a massive one. The amount of corruption that's involved in how the city responds to uh, freedom, of, freedom of Information requests is uh, staggering. We get it every single day. Um, we are now, I think, close to three years in our litigation with the CPD. Still ongoing. They're still blacked out a bunch of emails they recently sent us. Um, and that's just about a hiring of a thousand new officers. It wasn't anything to do with br brutality, but they just can't help lying and covering up. Um, so the next issue is uh, that I want to get to is this last week there was a city council hearing um, or within the last 10 days. Um, the Public Safety Community City Council once again reintroduced the latest version of ordinances, which is called GAPA or CPAC. GAPA is the Grassroots Alliance for Public Police Accountability. Um, they have a version of what they're calling a community commission, a community council that's going to have some oversight responsibilities on the police department. That'll be now the second civilian oversight. And I guess if you count um, the inspector general to some degree, I'm not sure what you would call them, but... Um, they have their version. This has been going on since actually right before um, Deborah's position in the Inspector General's office was created, right before CPAT, uh, COPA, the Chicago Office of Police Account or Citizen Office of Police Accountability, was created. Um, and they haven't got it passed. Lori Lightfoot said she was going to pass this in her first 100 days. We are approaching, I think, in a couple of months, her two year mark, and nothing has passed yet. Uh, CPAC is. Um, I don't remember the actual acronym, what the acronym stands for, so I apologize, but they have a version where this, uh, their version of the commission would actually run the department and oversee the police board and internal affairs. Um, both of them, there has been multiple versions. There's been two or three or four of those versions introduced into the city council. It's incredibly hard to keep track of what's in all of them. Um, the mayor a few months ago came out and said, hey, <laughs> We are, I'm going to, I'm done negotiating with these community people. Um, I'm going to introduce my own. Lo and behold, no version has been forthcoming. Uh, Alderman Talafario introduced his, um, held a meeting and had Gap and CPAC uh, introduce a, another new version of their ordinances. Where that's going to get us, no one knows. Um, there have been a few hearings. Um, they're going to have another uh, two more hearings one on the newest version of gappa one on the newest version of cpac um this shows you the absolute and complete and utter failure of our city council um no one has no group within the city of chicago even when you talk about the office of professional standards or ipra or copa um 
Oh, the police department has fallen down more as my dog Pepper's trying to get in on the conversation, um, has failed more to hold the police accountable and live up to their responsibilities under the law than the Chicago City Council and the Committee on Police and uh, what used to be police and fire, now uh, public safety. They fall down on the job every month. So this is nothing new. Um, I don't see a foreseeable future uh, when we're going to get this passed unless the mayor slides her version in and just quick passes it somehow. Um, and one other segment that I want to talk about, one other issue is whatever you call what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, there were victims. Parler was taken down. Our president was banned from uh, multiple social media platforms. Chicago has seen their own um, issue, their own victim, I guess is what you would call it. Second City Comp Blog. Now, it's unclear because I don't think a Chicago, uh, a mainstream slash reputable slash reasonably trustworthy news outlet has taken this on. But Second City Comp Blog, which was a public blog on Google Blogger, um, the blog itself, while not great, wasn't Trumpian in style. Um, it wasn't filled with the hate you would get from QAnon or white supremacists or the Proud Boys. But the comments were the worst of the worst of the worst. You could read those comments and certainly imagine some of those commenters were on the Capitol steps and then in the Capitol. And we're going to see, because I'm not sure if you all have seen it, but the Lucy Parsons Project has sent FOIAs, Freedom of Information Requests, into the CPD, um, trying to get a list of officers that have requested time off for this weekend to try to use that and the leak of Parler. Parler was hacked and some uh, technologists had, were able to download 70 terabytes of data. And to get an account on Parler, I guess you had to send them a copy of your ID so they would know exactly who it was. And all that information has been hacked and is available online. So they're going to try to trace it to Chicago police officers. It will be interesting um, to see if that happens. Uh, with Second City Cop, we're not sure if it says that when you go to request a site, it says you haven't been authorized to access it. Um, but on some fringe uh, political sites that are masquerading as media, they say um, that they've just decided to stop publishing. It, you're not, when you go to the Second City Cop, you're not getting like it doesn't exist. It's just that you're not, you can't access it. So it may be that it's just... Um, they were expecting the onslaught that would come from people reading their comments and they were just um, securing it. So it may not be down. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Okay. So uh, we'll be back in one minute and we'll be back with Deborah Whitsberg from the, uh, the deputy public safety inspector general should be an engaging conversation. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. All right, we are back. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to welcome in our guest, Deborah Witzberg, Deputy Public Safety Inspector General. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, before we get into the nuts of the bolts of the report, I just um, want to get a little more detail, I think, on some of this that people don't know around the police accountability system. So when you read this report, it says that you looked at uh, activities of the Independent Police Review Authority, or IPRA. There's going to be a lot of acronyms today, people. I'm sorry. It's just the way the police accountability system works. Um, so you looked at IPRA, you looked at COPA, which is assistant off of police accountability. It's the last time I'm going to say those names. You looked at IPRA, you looked at COPA, and you looked at the police department. But within the police department, most people think, oh, you looked at internal affairs. But there's internal affairs, and then there's CPD district and unit accountability. 
what are those? What do they look at and what is their role? Because most people, I don't think, know that exists. I think that's right. That's one of the sort of the, the many uh, rabbit holes of the police disciplinary system. So um, all internal investigations, disciplinary investigations, which rise above the level of sort of dis, you know informal discipline from a supervisor are conducted sort of under the auspices of the Bureau of Internal Affairs. But for certain of those investigations, BIA sends the the work out to what are called, as you say, district and unit accountability personnel to conduct the investigation. So it's still being conducted sort of under the umbrella of BIA, but instead of the work being done by an investigator assigned to BIA, it's being done by someone, by a designated person out in the districts or the units. That still kind of goes up through the channels within IA. Okay. I hear that, and I've known this has existed for some period of time. I hear that, and it, and it makes my skin crawl, whether or not how, um, how legitimate the process is. It would seem to me for, a, for an, a truly independent investigation, you'd want someone who doesn't know the officers and doesn't have to see them routinely. Um, that's just my uh, feeling. Can you, give me a, can you give us a quick idea? What were, would be some of the type, just random, everyday things that would be sent to those districts or account, the unit accountability people? The notion is that they would be sort of lower level violations. Um, there's not a huge amount of really clear policy about which categories of violations those might be. And in fact, there are some consent decree mandates around clarifying and strengthening those policies so that there's like a little bit more predictability to which matters are sent out to the districts and which are, are held by BIA itself. Okay. Yes, that would be good. I, and this is going to be a common theme here, and I've done it in our previous two times Deborah's been on. I'm going to complain. It's 2021. It's pretty sad when you have to get general policies reinforced because they're lacking. Um, we're, this isn't 1980, and maybe I'm just thinking about it differently, but it's 2021. That should be pretty well cleared up. Um, I will have to say I had limited interaction uh, with uh, internal affairs. We tried to get them through the Chicago uh, Police Accountability Coalition, something like that. Chicago Coalition of Police Accountability. We met with them once a year, and we tried to get them to produce data like uh, IPRA did at the time, their quarterly reports, their yearly reports. And they, someone high up in internal affairs told me one time that they, they were looking for the right website to do that on, which I thought was hilarious. Um, from a $1.7 billion organization at the time. I think they have the money to register, you know, CPD internal affairs, not to mention they have the huge site and the clear maps and all of that. But let's leave that. So today we're talking about this over, override. Well, first of all, no, let's go back to the affidavits. Why, when a citizen wants to file a complaint against an officer or resident, why do they have to fill, sign an affidavit under the threat of perjury? I think that's exactly the right place to start. So pursuant to state law in the first instance um, and a handful of other sources of authority down the road, but let's start with the state law. Um, an allegation of misconduct against a peace officer must, as you say, be supported by a sworn affidavit um, kind of carrying the penalties of perjury. There are some exceptions there, um, but that is, a, that is as a general matter true under the state law. That requirement also exists in the Municipal Code of Chicago and in CPD's department rules and directives. Um, so the exceptions include situations like um, violations of CPD's residency requirement um, or allegations of um, the abuse of medical leave, allegations of criminal misconduct, those sorts of things are exempted from the requirement. But as a general matter, all other allegations pursuant to each of those sources of authority require that the allegations be supported by an affidavit. Um, the, the, the existence of the affidavit requirement dates back more than a decade uh, in the state law. And it was certainly a matter of policy debate. Um, advocates for that requirement um, you know, um, put forward the position that it was necessary in order to discourage, um, you know, uh, unfounded, kind of inappropriate, um, super, like superfluous complaints against officers. 
um, opponents of the affidavit requirement, of course, um, have taken the position that it poses a, a really important obstacle to, to meaningful accountability. And that was discussed in both the Police Accountability Task Force report, as well as in the Department of Justice Pattern and Practice Study, that the existence of this requirement discourages um, the, the investigation of, of meaningful complaints of misconduct. Yeah, I, I've talked about this with um, policing experts and uh, senior leadership within the department, and they will admit, especially within the department, many of them will admit it's like, no, it's bad. Like, we need as much information about people that are, uh, about anything our officers are doing as possible. Um, because, especially at that time, if there was no affidavit, they really weren't collecting any information. Right. So they're like, that's for us to be able to evaluate. We need that information to evaluate our officers and what they're doing, policies, practices. And we're losing that by people being scared to sign affidavits. And if you've been, um, if, if you have been legitimately wronged by the police department, why you would then have someone come to you or you go to someone who looks and acts much like a police officer and then say, here, please sign here. But if you're, you know, it's under threat of perjury. We, this could come back at you. How you would trust them to sign that? I don't know. I think I, that's certainly a concern. I think I think there are you know retaliation concerns. There are certainly equity and access concerns around the affidavit requirement. Um, I think all of those are 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 important concerns. Really, the the tilt of this project is that um, the affidavit requirement need not be an obstacle to accountability um, in sort of the way it's been permitted to be because there is this override function available, which does exactly what it says. It overrides the affidavit requirement in certain circumstances. And so um, I think you're absolutely right. It's important to understand the requirement as a, as a foundational matter. That's where we start. Um, and, and the big picture conclusion of this report is that, you know, even with that requirement in place, there is this well-functioning, easily accessible mechanism um, to greatly diminish the profile of that obstacle to accountability. Okay, so let's get into it. What exactly, you mentioned it, what exactly is this override function and what's the process for the agencies to engage in it or engage it? The affidavit override uh, is basically an authorization to proceed with an investigation in the absence of a sworn affidavit. Um, and the mechanism for it is a, is a fairly straightforward one. So the, there are primarily two, although three in total, invest, potential investigating agencies, right, when you have an allegation of police misconduct. The two primary investigative agencies are BIA and COPA, as you've said, um, and the Office of Inspector General also conducts some frontline police misconduct investigations. So whichever investigating agency is the holder of, a, of an investigation, um, if, they, if that agency, you know, has a complaint and does not, is not able to secure an affidavit, they can seek authorization from the counterpart agency. So BIA will ask COPA, COPA will ask BIA to review the available evidence and make a determination of whether there is objective verifiable evidence in support of the allegations, which would suggest that it's appropriate for the investigation to proceed. And if so, to sign an override, to give authorization for that investigation to continue, even in the absence of the affidavit. Okay, so can you give our audience what, what were the, what's the nut and bolts? What cases did you look at? You evaluated this override feature. What was the time frame? How did you do it? How many cases? Give our audience the nuts and bolts. Sure. So we looked at a couple of different questions, um, which required, you know, slightly different pools of information. But roughly, we, we were primarily concerned with disciplinary investigations that were initiated, which is an important distinction, initiated between the beginning of 2017 and end of 2018. We had sort of this two-year period. Um, that two-year period includes the transition from IPRA, COPA's predecessor agency, to COPA. So we captured thing, event cases initiated on both sides of that divide. Um, that the end point in 2018. One thing I just want to note 
um, this is a little bit of a forecast maybe to a discussion of the agency responses. 20, the end of 2018 was a long time ago at this point. It's important to keep in mind that we looked at cases that were initiated during that time frame. Um, police misconduct investigations have not historically um, wrapped up in the blink of an eye. And so there are lots of those cases which were initiated during that period, 2017 to 2018, which in fact are not yet concluded. And that's reflected in, in some of the data in the report. But in any event, just in thinking about that time frame, I just want to make sure that's clear that, that those are the, the sort of birth dates of those cases. So we looked at that, at that universe of cases. Um, we also looked at the entire universe of override requests from the beginning of the life of the mechanism um, to, the, to the end of, of our period of analysis. Um, we found there that over a period of about 14 years, there had been um, fewer than 100 requests for an override. So that's, that's really important by way of sort of the landscape into which this project is pitched, right? That this mechanism, which is, as I explained, you know, quite easy to, quite easy to use um, and quite effective, has been categorically underused. Um, the agencies- Seven a year. If you go 14 well, years and 100, fact, seven a year. So in fact, it's interesting that you say that. that, that would be the average, right? But in fact, so there were 98, yeah looking to make sure I get these numbers right, 98 requests between February of 2005 and December of 2018. Um, of those 98 requests, uh, 64 of them occurred in after 2016. So much worse than seven a year in the early years in that period. Yeah, so that's, that's Ipra Alana's Rosenzweig and Scott Ando. I got my leaders right. Not to mention That's what's right. going on at your BIA. Right. So, so the take-home the take-home message there is that despite how accessible this mechanism is, it has been really tremendously underused. Which which tells an important part of the story as far as you know the extent to which the affidavit requirement is 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 and has been allowed to act as an obstacle to accountability. Um, so, wow. so I'm going to tell. One, let me interrupt real quick. So, like our audience for. Our viewers, whatever platform you're on, we're on various ones. Talk, put your questions in, and we'll try to get to them at the end. Sorry, go ahead, Deborah. No, no, I'm sorry. Um, so, so we looked at that. We looked at that. You know, where have those requests been made? Where requests for over an override has been made? We looked at the sort of evidence upon which those requests have been based. Right. So, we talked about the fact that the the gist of those requests is one agency saying to another, you know, we have this complaint. We have objective verifiable evidence in support of the allegations. Please review that evidence and authorize us to continue with the investigation. And so we looked at what kind of evidence the agencies have relied on in making those requests. And there's a number of different things. Um, there's, uh, you know, um, video evidence, body-worn camera, in-car camera, third-party security footage, variety of those kinds of things. There are witness accounts, um, medical records, photographic evidence, um, OEMC records, 911 records, any number of kinds of things which the agencies might rely on to say, you know, we have the subjective evidence, it supports the allegations, and it, it provides the basis for us to continue with an investigation. So then, so that's sort of the universe of, of cases where there was an override request. In the, in the rest of the universe of disciplinary cases that were initiated during this two-year period that we talked about, we looked at how big a piece of that landscape is occupied by cases that were closed for lacking an affidavit. And, you know, to, to sort of situate this in context, complaints that are closed for lacking an affidavit, each of those amounts to an allegation of police misconduct, which was never meaningfully investigated to a finding. So those are situations in which there was never a determination by an investigative agency whether or not misconduct took place. And I think it's, it's important to keep in mind here that an investigation concluded without a finding vindicates neither the interests of a complainant nor of an accused CPD member. Because some allegations of misconduct that are investigated, right, result in, in findings of exoneration, result in findings that a CPD member didn't do anything wrong. 
neither that outcome nor a sustained outcome is possible in an investigation that's simply closed for lacking an affidavit. So what we found in that population is that a majority of cases of disciplinary cases closed in that two-year period were closed for lacking an affidavit. More cases were closed for that reason than for any other, including findings, um, which is pretty staggering. Um, well, I was just going to say, yeah, we looked at the stats. Majority of cases, 62% of final, finalized disciplinary investigations were closed for lacking an affidavit. Right. That is a, that's a pretty mind-numbing number when you think about it. Well said. <laughs> um, look at all that information and intelligence about how, um, how policing is being done that we could gain if those were uh, meaningful meaningfully in investigated to a conclusion. Um, all right, that's, that's crazy to me. Uh, I want to go over some more of your findings, get some comments. Um, sure. Investigators closed for lacking an affidavit when there was objective verifiable evidence which supported the allegations rendering them eligible for an override. How often, how frequent in your, in the couple years you looked at was that, that they, yeah. That they, so, so I, I guess I should ask how systemic was that? So this is a really good question. And, and, um, it's probably important to say as a matter of methodology that we reviewed a sample of case files and it was a stratified random sample, um, which, you know, it's important to exercise some caution about how we extrapolate those results. Um, so I just, I want to sort of be, be clear about the caution, but the fact of the matter is that we looked at, we did a, we looked at a, a sample of 183 case files from this period of time that we're talking about. Um, and we found that a quarter of them were improperly closed for lacking an affidavit. Um, either they were either improperly closed for lacking an affidavit or they were unnecessarily closed for lacking an affidavit, which is to say that there was evidence in the case files um, which would have supported an override request. Um, and there are a couple of different categories that we talk about um, there, you know, constituting improper closure. So, those are situations where an override was not requested um, despite available evidence indicating that, that you know, an override might have been available. Um, others were situations where the agencies did not do enough preliminary investigation even to kind of meet the mark of determining whether or not there was objective verifiable evidence on the basis of which they could have pursued an override. Um, and there were even, even other cases where it cases seem to have just been closed in error for lacking an affidavit. So we talked about the fact that there are a handful of exceptions. There are a handful of kinds of allegations which don't require an affidavit. And we saw situations where, despite the fact that in, uh, you know, a complaint would have been exempt from the affidavit requirement in the first place, the agencies sometimes close those cases for lacking an affidavit in error. Um. Do we know, oh, do we, I guess the better way is do we think, do we think, what's at the root cause of this, these problems? Is this a lack of training, a lack of policy, uh, inappropriate staff, uh, lack of staffing? I mean, what's at the root cause of these issues? Yes. <laughs> um, I think, <laughs> um, I, I think, look, with, with a practice that has been so clearly underused as a historical matter, um, you know, this is, this is, I think, plainly not, has not been part of the kind of operational reality of these investigating agencies. And that points to deficiencies in both training and policy. And so our recommendations really are pitched in, in both of those directions. Okay, this next finding is one that I have been hollering about at these agencies, at IPRA, 
not so much Copa, but I am not surprised. Um, and the fact that you found it, um, it's a good thing, but I'm aggravated that it exists. When it comes to civil suits, it seems to me, and it, it, it has seemed to me throughout since it was created, um, that they had the power to go in and look at the complaints and um, get depositions if they were taken and get that kind of and see the filings and get information that if present in the lawsuit would easily sufficiently surpass um, whatever uh, bar they have to get to seek an override. And it seemed to me they were never doing that. And I could never get stats from IPRA under both Alana Rosenzweig and Scott Ando about how often they were doing it. Um, and it seems to me that you found that also to be a problem. So can you talk about that a little bit before I start hollering some more? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, um, I agree with you that this is a particularly compelling and troubling piece of this landscape. I will also say, I think this is a particularly timely finding given kind of recent events. Um, so the, the, the fact, fact of the finding here is that the investigating agencies were even more likely to close a case for lacking an affidavit if it was a, a, an allegation that was accompanied by a civil suit than they were in the rest of the population. So we talked about that 62, 63% number in the, in the entire population of cases in the case, in disciplinary complaints, you know, arising out of misconduct or alleged misconduct, which was also the basis of a civil suit, that number is 74, 75%, it's even higher. Um, that sets up a very, very troubling reality, which is that um, that means there are lots of situations where the city, all of, right, all of us as taxpayers are paying out settlements and judgments arising out of misconduct where there's never been a meaningful investigation of that misconduct and where there has been no opportunity for the sorts of lessons learned that you referred to earlier. So we're, we're paying dollars for which we are learning from which we're learning nothing from those, either about individual officers and potential misconduct or about sort of larger, larger problems within the department. There are some um, kind of practical dimensions to this particular finding. It is you know, it is often the case, we see this playing out in the investigative files, that if a person files a lawsuit against the city and against the Chicago Police Department, they're advised by their attorneys uh, not to participate in a disciplinary investigation um, because it creates all kinds of concerns, right, about kind of papering up witnesses and statements and so on. So um, it is often the case that a plaintiff will say to BIA or COPA, you know, I I'm not going to make a statement. I'm not going to participate. And I think the reality is that is what leads us to a place where those, you know, the, the investigative agencies basically say, okay, then no affidavit, please closed. The problem, and I think you identified a really important piece of this, is that that ignores the fact that precisely in these situations, there are tremendous opportunities to proceed with those investigations where appropriate, even in the absence of an affidavit from the complainant. And I think there are sort of two Two ways to think about that. One is the one you mentioned that, you know, in many of those civil suits, there would be materials gathered either in the, in the filings or in discovery, which might provide an appropriate basis for an override request, right? That's, that's sort of one piece of it. Yep. The other, the second piece to think about procedurally is that there may well be materials in those suits, which would themselves conceivably act as an appropriate substitute for an affidavit. So for example, if, you know, an affidavit is a sworn a statement in which, you know, the affiant affirms the truth of the matter asserted. If somebody has given, for example, deposition testimony in the, case, in the course of a civil suit, that too is sworn testimony, testimony during which someone has attested to the truth of the matter. And we sort of raise the question of, you know, whether that a de deposition testimony, for example, could be appropriately substituted for an affidavit. There are also, um, most filings in these suits are not verified complaints. Most, most, um, most times, most often when people file this sort of civil suit, 
the, the actual complaint, the filing of that civil suit is not accompanied by an affidavit, but it conceivably could be. That's another situation where there, there's an avenue to proceed with an underlying investigation, um, even in the absence of an affidavit. So the, the civil suits piece of this is like where these things come together. It is in some ways most troubling that these investigations do not, that these matters are not investigated to a finding. And there are all of these opportunities for them to be investigated, which are not being capitalized upon. Right. And I have, I have heard for years, well, if they file a lawsuit, they don't want to talk to us. And I'm like, yes, but, and I understand that. And that is an issue. But at the same time, you understand that these cases are going on for two, three, four years before a settlement is reached. Many of the times, especially during the times when IPRA was um, operating. And there is a lot of the filings going on back and forth over the years and discovery. There's no way there's not information in there. And I've never been able, I was never able to get a straight answer from um, Alana Rosenswag or Scott Ando about why they weren't doing it more. I know Scott Ando, and I can say this, he was a disaster while at IPRA. He, um, he did not like being questioned and he certainly didn't, he dismissed lawsuits as all people with sour grapes. Um, we are paying out a lot of money a year for sour grapes, tens of millions of dollars. Um, I'm, I'm going to pitch, uh, for people that are interested in this issue specifically on our website, the police settlement transparency and accountability ordinance. We are trying to get the city council to pass, um, basically deals with accountability and transparency around civil litigation. Yeah. There's a, uh, sign up form. Um, to support it, but also this will force in every month um, a practice by which the police accountability system and the police department have to come in front of city council every month about the settlements and judgments. And this might be a vehicle to make this better if every month the head of COPA um, and internal affairs have to talk about why what's going on as a result of these settlements um, and what's been done. Because if we're going to pay out five or 10 or 20, I mean, we're paying out some years I think in 1998, it was $125 million. The fact that the police accountability community fell down on the job and didn't learn from everything they possibly could from all of that money and all of those suits, um, it's a massive failure. Um, so that's my rant on that. I've been on this issue for a long time. Please go ahead, comment. Yeah, no, I, I that's right. I, I agree with all of that. Um, I, I think, you know, there's also... There's another piece of this, which I think, as I say, has been is, is, is a very timely one given recent events. Um, Anjanette Young uh, and the the search warrant execution in her home has obviously been been much a topic of public conversation. And uh, in the city council hearing held uh, at the end of December on that matter, uh, COPA testified that 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 is a situation where. Young filed a civil suit against the city. There was a disciplinary investigation uh, initiated uh, in 2019, and um, Ms. Young did not wish to participate. You know, I think likely in that sort of category that we talked about, where, where plaintiffs are also are often, at least at the outset of civil litigation, not inclined to do that. Um, and the, the testimony was that no override was sought until um, December of 2020. Right. And, and there's the failure. Like, I, I listened to that. I, I think we streamed that. I think we streamed that we um, we four or five <laughs> hours of it. I could only take it for so long. Um, it's so frustrating. Um, yeah, that's the, you go get it on our YouTube channel. You can see the stream if you want to. Um, but the thing that aggravated me about that is like, I listen, Copa, she didn't file a complaint with us. She never came to us. Okay, I understand that. But I've also questioned that I, this I did hear Alana talk about, Alana Rosen's like the first chief administrator of IPRA. They were not ever confident they were being notified by the law department about all the filings in a timely manner. And once again, it is 2021 that that should be a, uh, 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 um, a terminable offense, which means if the law department, someone in the law department has got to take responsibility for that. And when, and if you don't do that, you have to be terminated. Um, cause there's issues like how does, 
Um, how would COPA, and you, you, you may or may not be able to, to comment on this. I don't know, but I'm going to rant a minute. How does COPA find out that there was a deposition in the young case? Is the law department required to, every time they get some in, a filing or information on the case, they have to submit it to COPA? And is that a requirement? Is that in the law? Um, because that's one of the other issues. I'm not, I, am I defending the police accountability system here? But that's a murky area that should not be murky, right? How does that system work? Because I know when we ended IPRA, it turned out that IPRA, miraculously, there were all these shootings they never found out about. So they never investigated when we changed over from IPRA to COPRA. So if you have comments, I'd love to hear them. I think what I would say is that as a general matter, um, information sharing among city agencies and mechanisms for that uh, is an important area for inquiry. Um, and, and there are some consent decree provisions that kind of kind of approach this territory. Um, but I, those are important questions. So how does how does the notification work? You know, to initiate a disciplinary investigation, what sort of information sharing is there as information is developed in the course of a civil suit? Um, I, those are those are ripe areas for inquiry. Now, I'm, they are, they are 100%, right, as is FOIA, but I have to send you the letter. Um, but once again, I, as I talked about this in the first segment, this is the city council falling down on the job. Man, put it in law. Mandate within 24 hours or 48 hours, the law department must deliver this information to COPA. I think the, I think the city council, we need to stop depending and relying on these agencies, the goodness of these agencies to do these things. And I am going to be pushing from 2021 forward for a lot of this to be mandated by our legislative uh, leaders here and that they have to follow up on it because um, as, as your two other reports have seen, there, there, uh, there is serious murkiness and shakiness between interagency who has to deliver what and how do they deliver it? And how do they know it was sent? Um, that that we need to uh, clarify, rectify, get down into city ordinance that this has to be done because um, we can't rely on them. And and this the other part about it is when humans fail, and they always do, um, this these things just further push people away. The Anjanette Young case is a perfect example that they should have been all over that case, and they didn't get all over it till that video hit the press, then all of a sudden it, become a, it became an issue. Yeah, I, I think that's a hugely important point. And I've talked about this in the context of other, of other work we've done, but I, you know, this is precisely why we think about these problems. Um, these aren't volume problems, impact problems. Whenever this sort of failure happens, however frequently or infrequently it happens, it has a tremendously negative impact um, because it, failures like these feed distrust in the system and they undermine confidence. Um, and, and so I, I totally agree. I, this is a, this is exactly why we sort of think about these things in terms of their impact, not in terms of their volume. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've said it before. I, um, I was in the first discussion when community renewal society was looking to make an impact on police accountability that came to me and asked me, what my opinion was, and I said in the auditor's office. That was what we needed. We need someone to do some more systemic looks at things. Um, um, and for, fast forward a couple of years, I am so glad that conversation happened. It led to fair cops being drafted, and it led to your office because the reports are great. Um, I hope the city council um, lives up to their responsibility now. Um, and I'm just going to stop yelling at them, except for to say, I, I, I recommend everyone look at that live stream from the Ann Jeanette Young City Council hearing. I think it'd be very educational. And when you watch it, please know that the warrant they used to raid her house was not a no-knock warrant. But look at all the city council members pushing to outlaw no-knock warrants. I mean, they can't even try to take action on something that's meaningfully going to change the thing that happened to them right in front of them. Um, that's how little uh, attention and care that many city council members face. So I'm going to get off that subject. A um, couple more results before we uh, wrap this up. In your report, you stated that 
when an override is sought, there's a higher rate of sustaining investigations when compared to just investigations where there's an affidavit. Can you talk to me a little bit? Because that kind of shocked me. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So what, what kind of pointed us in the direction of that question was the, you know, the concern that I think is out there. Um, this was certainly part of the, the conversation around the, new, the negotiation of the new supervisor's contract with, with CPD. Um, but there's a concern, right, that the, um, that the affidavit requirement is there to protect against, you know, fluff complaint, against meaningless complaints. And that there's a risk that an override would wind up kind of cluttering the disciplinary histories of members with these superfluous complaints. And so we wanted to look at like, you know, whether that, that is sort of borne out in the information. Does it look like the over, use of the override process poses that sort of risk? And the answer is that no is sort of the short answer, right? Investigations that mm-hmm. proceed on the basis of an override are more likely to result in sustained findings of misconduct. It's important for, for a number of reasons. It's important because I think it, it really does suggest that a robust use of this mechanism just improves, just raises the tide of accountability, right? It, it makes investigating agencies more successful. Um, it also, though, I think has, a re- has something really important to say about the, um, the function of the, the override process. And, it, you know, it, it's a reminder of the fact that in order to, to secure an override, the investigating agency is submitting basically its preliminary investigation for external review. And it's an opportunity for the counterpart agency to look at that evidence and say, yes, there's objective, verifiable evidence here in support of the allegations. Um, And that's kind of this additional review step, which I think serves to, you know, weed out, um, well, you know, well-based, well-founded complaints from from ones that are unfounded, and I think it goes to kind of protect the procedural fairness of members. Okay, we run out of time, but I do want to talk about um, a, a one of one recommendation in particular. Since we, I might get the two, but um, I'm going to read it because remember, everyone, this is in the report. CPD and COPA should take measures to prohibit and from discouraging. Well, prohibit investigators from discouraging reporting parties from signing affidavits. Yes. What? <laughs> what? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that your indignation there comes at the notion that they might do that, that they might discourage people from signing affidavits. Yes, because that had to come into your mind or whoever wrote all of this, because otherwise it wouldn't be in there. Yeah. Um, I will note it's also in the consent decree, incidentally, the notion that, yes. that yes. to discourage. And, and, and here's, here's what I think that's getting at. That is going to, I mean, certainly prevent situations in which an investigator might actively explicitly discourage someone from signing an affidavit. I, that cannot happen. It is also, though, pitched toward preventing situations where it might be a little bit more subtle than that, in that you can imagine, right, an investigator saying to somebody, look, I've watched the body-worn camera footage and it just, it doesn't show what you're saying. Like, I don't, I just, I don't see it. Um, it, it, is, it is that sort of conduct by investigators, which we're aiming to prevent. Okay, so then my follow-up question is, did you have reason to believe that had occurred, is occurring, or might occur? Or is this just something you took out of, as it was something in the consent decree and you thought it was worthy of, of um, also further putting it in your reports so to make the point? Both. Um, we talk about a couple of case studies in the report, and one of the ones we talk about is a situation where, you know, it, we, were, we had a concern about whether an interaction between an investigator and a complaining witness might have had exactly the impact that we're talking about, sort of serving to discourage signing of an affidavit. So I would say we both saw cause for concern about that issue and just recognize it to be an important practice. Okay, my last question. Could, is some of this, what we're seeing, let me back up, is COPA adequately funded to do what we need them to do? 
I don't know if you can, given your position, comment on that, but it just seems to me that some of this is just lack of resources and lack of personnel. Am I, am I, am I wrong in viewing that as an outsider on this, that that's part of the issue? You know, I, more resources are better. I, I don't, I don't think any city agency would disagree with that. Um, but, but none of the recommendations that we made here um, have our signs attached to them. Um, so, you know, does it, does it take resources to provide good training? Sure. Um, but I, 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 this is not a budget problem in my mind. Um, you know, everybody, everybody, we could all do our jobs. It would be easier for all of us to do our jobs with more people and more dollars. No arguments here. Us too. Um, but this is not, this is not in the strictest sense, a resource problem. This is a training and a policy okay. problem. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, I helped um, with a bunch of other people write the fear cops ordinance and ended up creating your job and COPA. So we, and we tried to give them what we thought and it was a fight with the Emanuel administration around resources. Um, Deborah Witzberg, thank you so much for appearing again. We look forward to your next report. Stay safe. Thank you, thank you. you too. For our, uh, for our listeners, um, if you're interested tonight, I think it's 730 Chicago, CJP Nation meets. You can go to our website um, for more information. Next week, we'll be back at a special time, which I got to clear with Eric, so he's going to find out about it now, our engineer. Um, I think it's like three o'clock central with doctors, Don Steeman and Dave Olson, who just did a review of bail reform and its impact on violence in Chicago. And then the week after is two people from the white bird clinic in Eugene, Oregon, talking about cahoots, which is a, uh, alternative response system that's been operating in 30 years in Eugene, uh, one that our mayor could have easily looked at and, uh, replicated in Chicago instead of slow rolling it, which is what she's doing now. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Deborah. Stay safe. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Tracy. Bye-bye.